Hey, my name is Parker Manuel, pastor of Pinewood Church in Boulder, Colorado, where our mission is to meet people where they are and point them to Jesus. Hope you enjoy today's podcast. Kingdom for all. We've been working through Acts. I hope you've been following along with our New Testament reading, the NT365. New Testament reading through the New Testament in a year as a church. You can find that reading plan online. Really hope that you follow along because what we're actually doing is we're reading through the New Testament and then we're going to be talking about it in our small groups and then I'm going to be preaching from it every Sunday. And so if there's a text that you're ever going through and you're like, man, I wonder if he's going to preach on, maybe he's going to preach on Peter this week. Well, not talking about Peter this week. Maybe the Ethiopian eunuch. No, we're not talking about the Ethiopian eunuch. Tonight we're going to be looking at Acts chapter 9. Acts 9, and we're going to be looking at actually a pretty decent chunk of Scripture. We're going to be looking at the first nine verses, and we're going to talk about a converted sinner. Acts chapter 9, 1 through 9. We're going to talk about a converted sinner. Do we have any converted sinners in the house? We're going to be talking in Acts chapter 9, verses 10 through 19. We're going to talk about an obedient servant. And then in Acts 9, verses 20 through 31, we're going to be talking about an empowering sponsor, a converted sinner, an obedient servant, an empowering sponsor. These are three different stories, each unique, but that God used in a really powerful way that I hope is a blessing to you this evening. The title of today's message is A Story of Redemption. A story of redemption. And the big idea that we're going to talk about throughout the entire message is that God will use whatever means necessary to bring about redemption in your life. And as redeemed believers, we are called to listen, listen to the voice of God. We're called to obey what he tells us to do. And then we are called to empower others to do the same. Say it one more time. God will use whatever means necessary to bring about redemption in your life. He wants to save you. As redeemed believers, we are called to listen, obey, and empower. Let's look at these first three callings. Let's start in, uh, let's talk about a converted sinner, starting in verse 1 through 9. It says this, Now Saul was still breathing threats and murder against the disciples of the Lord. He went to the high priest, and he requested letters from him to the synagogues in Damascus, so that if he found any men or women who belonged to the way, everybody say, the way, the way, he might bring them as prisoners to Jerusalem. As he traveled and was nearing Damascus, a light from heaven suddenly flashed around him. Falling to the ground, he heard a voice saying to him, Saul, Saul. Why are you persecuting me? Who are you, Lord? Saul said, I am Jesus, the one you are persecuting, he replied. But get up and go into the city, and you will be told what you must do. The men who were traveling with him stood speechless, hearing the sound but seeing no one. Saul got up from the ground As though his eyes were open, he could not see nothing. So they took him by hand and led him into Damascus. He was unable to see for three days. Everybody say three days. Three days. days. And he did not eat or drink. 
Let's start by giving a little bit of a context into who Saul is. We start off into this passage seeing that Saul was still breathing threats and murder against the disciples of the Lord. So just from that line alone, I think we can gather that Saul is a pretty aggressive and intense dude towards Christians. Saul was known to be, and referenced himself as a Hebrew among Hebrew, a Pharisee among Pharisee. He sat under the rabbinical teaching of Gamaliel. It was a really high leader of the day, a really well-known rabbi. And so, I mean, let's just say Saul knew the Bible. Uh, I think it was by the age of seven or eight, somebody knows in here, that he had to have the entire first books of the Bible memorized, the Torah memorized. How many of you have the Torah memorized? Okay, so, so Saul, who, who was breathing threats and murders against the disciple, he, he had more Bible memorized than everyone in this room. So he was, he was a very well-educated person. Obviously, took his religion super serious by who he sat under, what he was striving for. I mean, that would be like saying, I think, I want to be the pastor among pastors. I, I mean, I don't really care about that, but... That's what he was striving for. He wanted to reach the top. Not only was he very well educated, knew a lot of the Bible, but, and sat under uh, a really high authority priest, but he was also from Tarsus, which made him a Roman citizen. So he had the status as well. Not to mention, he had a really cool name. Saul came from King Saul, who was known to be, and which is a very common name back in that day, but it was known to be someone of tall stature and very good looking. So he had the name, he had the education, he had the religion. He was a, a prolific, obviously, we, from the writings that we read, he was a prolific writer and uh, preacher and communicator. Man, Saul had it all, right? Look at this guy Saul, crushing life. But in reality, Saul had it all, but in reality he had nothing. He was, he was blind, and he was empty. And we see that he f found that in his self-righteousness to try to earn approval from God of what he thought he was doing right, was actually persecuting the very God he was attempting to serve in his own self-righteousness. Wow. So he was also the one, if you remember last weekend, we talked about Stephen and how Stephen was the first martyr in the Bible. He gave his life for the Lord. They stoned him for preaching the truth and delivering the gospel and challenging the Pharisees. Saul was right there not only watching, but affirming the whole time. We see in the scripture that he was the one carrying the coats afterwards. Saul would then go on to the Damascus road. He got approval from the high priest because it's not good enough for him just to be an advocate against the way. No, he wanted to be a persecutor of those following the way. And so he said, hey, high priest, can I go to Damascus? Because after 
Stephen had been killed, persecution arose in Jerusalem for believers, and a lot of the believers of the way, we call it just Christianity today, they fled to Damascus. It's about 175 miles away, and he got approval to do that. So he was a zealot. He's going to go find those Christians. And he's going to, 175 miles away. He's going to hunt them down and he's going to bring them back. If you keep reading in Scripture about the life of Saul, Saul will even tell you that he was the chief among all sinners, persecutor of Christians, murderer, arrogant. Super self-righteous. But then something happened. Scripture says a light from heaven suddenly flashed around him. And And in an instant, Saul had an encounter with Jesus and everything changed. That word flash actually comes from the Greek word referencing a bolt of lightning. So this is no casual experience that Saul had on the road to Damascus. It was a, it was a profound moment. Now you got to remember, Damascus, on, on this road, it was in the desert. The, sun, the desert sun was beating down on him. And for a flash of lightning to be that bright, to knock him off of his horse, or whatever he was riding on, his, maybe it wasn't a horse, a donkey maybe, But to knock him on his back must have been quite the experience. Jesus pursued Saul. Jesus had a plan and he had a purpose for Saul. If you read on, it says, Saul, why are you persecuting me? In Saul's mind, Jesus was a false prophet. Jesus claimed to be God, so he was a heretic. And in, Paul's, in Saul's mind, Jesus was dead. So you can imagine, this is for Saul, a really dramatic experience. Not only did I get shot with a bolt of lightning in the middle of the desert, but now I'm face to face with a God who should be dead. At this point, I, I would imagine he start to get a, a little fear, fearful. I mean, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? And he says, who are you, Lord? This is not the same word as who are you, sir, as in like what would be a formal greeting. But he, in this moment, realizes he's coming face to face with a holy God. Who are you, Lord, Saul said, And Jesus said, I am Jesus, the one you are persecuting. All right, let's look at the text. Why are you persecuting me? Then he says, I am Jesus, the one you are persecuting. Think about Paul's life up to this point and what we've talked about. At what point did Saul actually persecute Jesus? Because Saul hadn't seen the risen Lord up to this point. So think about at what point did Saul personally attack Jesus? I love what Jesus does in this passage. It's something really dear to my heart. 
Because I, I have a profound love for the local church. I believe in it. I believe it's God's plan A. I believe it's a temporary tool that God uses to expand his kingdom through his people. A temporary tool. Why would you say that? The local church is it. I mean, is the church at Ephesus still here? Philippi, no. But they were temporary tools to advance the kingdom of God. Jesus has a love for his church. Notice how Jesus doesn't draw a distinction between him and his body. No, when Saul was persecuting the followers of the way, they were personally persecuting and attacking Jesus himself. It's super common, and I've heard it countless times. It's, it's not only common, but it's, it's actually kind of quite popular to isolate yourself from the church. It's even more popular to become a critic of the church. And so everything the church says, everything the church does, nobody's doing it right. Pastor doesn't preach on sin enough. He's too heavy on grace. There's too much haze. <laughs> I don't know. There's the music is too loud. I don't know. What are some of the one, what are some of our favorites? I mean, there's there's some good ones out there. But the reality is there is a million things that you could complain about the church. There's a ton of things I don't like that churches do. I don't like certain styles. I don't like certain postures. I don't like certain people's attitudes. Why why is it that it's so easy for us to find things to critique in the local church? Well, let's make it a physical illustration here. Raise your hand if you are perfect. Andy? Nobody? <laughs> Perfect in every way. We have, we have a few. Raise your hand if you're like, think about this. If you're like, man, if everybody in the church loved like I love, gave like I gave, served like I served, that would be the perfect church. Somebody, somebody be honest. All right. So let's give the church a little bit of grace here. If, if, if churches are all screwed up as you, why are we surprised that there's not a perfect church? We're striving to be. We want to be the church that God wants us to be, to make the impact that he wants us to make. You see, I believe that we may not put ourselves in a category of Saul as being a persecutor of the church, but we can easily become a critic of it. And instead of advocating for it and protecting for it and fighting for it and celebrating what God is doing in other churches, we're like, yeah, I don't know about them, you know. I've heard some things. No, that is not going to be the posture Pinewood has. We champion other churches. We believe in other churches. We honor other churches. If you want if you, hey, if you think that there's a perfect church out there, if that isn't out there and that you think that you could start it, Go start one, baby. You'll find out real quick. It is not as easy as it looks. 
But we're not going to have that mindset. We're going to champion the efforts. God's doing big things in Boulder. When before we moved here, we felt like God had told us that we are going to come play a small part in the big things that he's already doing. A small part in the big, big things that he's already doing. What does that do? That puts our heart in a correct posture to say, Vine Life, ah, who owns this building? Vine Life, thank you for holding the ground. Thank you for faithfully preaching the good news of the gospel. You made it possible for us to be here today. The fact that you never gave up. You kept showing up every Sunday. We honor you. How can we bless you? We pray for you. The well in Boulder. Grace Commons in Boulder. Calvary in Boulder. Cornerstone in Boulder. We love you. We champion you. We honor you. Flatirons, Red Rocks. I, don't even, I'm, I could be up here all day long shouting down the churches that faithfully show up every single week. Are they perfect? Probably not. Definitely not. But they're showing up preaching the good news of the gospel. We're advocates of the church. We're protectors of the church. It's not a place where we're going to dishonor the church because we don't want to dishonor God. We're not going to be critics of the church because we're going to be critics of God. Imagine, if you will, you invite me over to your house and you say, I would love for you to come over and I'd love for you to come to my birthday party. Oh, that means so much. Thanks for inviting me to your birthday party. I, I love parties. Yeah, you can come. I like you, but leave your skank wife at home. Excuse me? Say that one more time. I'm, I'm leaning in a little bit, shaking, shaking off. You see, why would I have a problem if somebody criticizes or demeans or talks negatively about my wife? Because it's my, my bride. It's my love. We're one. To say something of my bride is to say something of me. That's what Jesus here said. Don't persecute my bride. Don't condemn my bride. Notice that he was blind for how many days? We said it. So he couldn't see for three days. Now, I find that very interesting because I think for the first time in Saul's life, he could actually see those three days. He may not be able to see the physical world, but I think for the first time in his life, his spiritual eyes were opened. And he was able to reflect on his life, maybe some of the decisions that he had made, maybe the ways in which he persecuted. I can just imagine the reality of his life playing over and over in his mind those three days that he could not physically see. The idea of three is super important in uh, the Hebrew. Uh, there's a word called shalosh or shaloshash. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Means harmony. It means new life and completeness. Can we think of anything in God's word where threes are significant with new life or harmony or completeness? Maybe the Trinity? where we see the Father, we see the Son, we see the Holy Spirit. Or maybe, how, how many days 
Do we see Jesus in the tomb? Three days. In Jewish culture, three days past the time of death indicated that you were truly dead. And I, I mean, I didn't find this anywhere else. I just find it extremely fascinating that he was blind for three days. And how many of you know that God specializes in the business of resurrecting dead things? Like when you come to the end of yourself saying, okay, God, I've tried everything. I've tried being super religious. That didn't work. I, I, I've, tried, I've tried working to earn your favor. That didn't work. I tried pursuing career, sex, money, drugs. I've, try, I've tried everything. It's not working. When you come to the end of yourself and you say, God, I need you. That's when God resurrects. And that's where the redemption story begins. You see, Paul, Saul, sorry, Saul and Paul, it's interchangeable, okay. Saul worked his whole life to redeem himself. But the reality of the spiritual life, the reality of the way in the Christian life is, is that we can never redeem, we can never save our own brokenness. That even in our best efforts to do good, like, okay, I'm going to work really hard. To, like, apart from Jesus, I'm going to work really hard to be generous. I'm going to work really hard to love people well, to serve people well. What's so fascinating about the effort and the striving and the striving to do good, to be good, to excel, what you'll actually end up finding is, is that you're doing a boomerang back to your own self-righteousness. You're deeming yourself self-righteous because you're doing so well. Paul came to the intimates of himself at this, after this three day and after this encounter with Jesus and everything changed. So I want to ask you a question. Have you had a personal encounter with Jesus? It's my hope and my prayer that you have that encounter tonight. Next, we see an obedient servant. In verse 10, there was a disciple in Damascus named Ananias, and the Lord said to him in a vision, Ananias, here I am, Lord, he replied. Get up and go to the street called Straight. The Lord said to him, to the house of Judas, and ask for a man from Tarsus named Saul, since he is praying there. In a vision, he has seen a man named Ananias coming in and placing his hands on him so that he may regain his sight. Lord, Ananias answered, I have heard from many people about this man, how much harm he has done to your saints in Jerusalem, and he has authority here from the chief priest to arrest all who call on your name. But the Lord said to him, Go, for this man is my chosen instrument to take my name to Gentiles, kings, and Israelites. I will show him how he must suffer for my name. Ananias went and entered the house. He placed his hands on him and said, Brother Saul. Doesn't that sound like an old like country church? Brother Saul, the Lord Jesus, who appeared to you on the road you were traveling, has sent me so that you may regain your sight and be filled with the Holy Spirit. At once, something like scales fell from his eyes, and he regained his sight. Then he got up and was baptized. And after taking some food, he regained his strength. I love Ananias. 
the obedient servant. We don't really know a whole lot about Ananias, and this is honestly the last time we're going to really hear about Ananias. But he had a critical role to play in the conversion of Saul. And not just the conversion of Saul, as we're going to see here in a little bit, a critical role to play in the gospel advancing rapidly. But what was the beginning of the story of Ananias? When God spoke, Ananias listened. Ananias, here I am, Lord. When God speaks, are you listening? You may be thinking, I haven't heard God speak in a long time. You see, I want to encourage you to maybe, maybe slow your life down. Maybe get in the Word. Maybe quiet your soul in prayer and say, God, what are you saying to me? God wants to speak to you. The Christian life is not about a religion that you get to check the boxes, that you do this, that you don't do this. This is not the Christian life. The Christian life is that you live your life in relationship with Jesus Christ. And that as you're in relationship with him, you're talking to him, he's talking to you. You're reading what he has to say through his holy word, and and you're praying back his holy word to him. And it's this interchange of relationship. But But so often, I feel like so often we're good at talking, but we're very bad at listening. God, I need a new car. God, get me out of this situation. God, I need rescued. Help me. It's been a tough day. But we're not so good about listening. God, what do you want me to do today? Who do you want me to, who do you want me to talk to today? Who can I encourage today? God, speak to me. Ananias was someone who first listened. But one of the, next we see Ananias do something that he gets a lot of hate for. A lot of biblical scholars will say that Can you imagine Ananias challenging God? Look what he says. Have you heard from many of the people about this man? What? Ananias? Oh, yeah, thanks, God, for that info. I'm not sure you're aware or not. Have you got the Damascus Tribune lately? I mean, there is this uproar about this man named Saul coming to persecute the Christians here. Do you not know what's happening, God? But I actually, I know, I mean, he may get a lot of flack for it, but I feel like if we're all being honest, we can relate a whole lot to Ananias in this moment. God comes to you, and maybe you haven't heard God say something to you in a long time, but maybe in a minute you hear God speak to you. Maybe it's even during the worship time, or, or maybe it's whenever the, our MCs were up here challenging you and talking about generosity, maybe in those moments you heard God say to you, I want you to slam Sunday. And you're like, I mean, God, I mean, I don't know if you know, but I I don't really have the time. Sunday's kind of me me day. And, And so, and God, I'm like, wait, can we not relate to the hesitation here? I want you to start being generous with your money, and I want you to start tithing towards the local church and start being obedient to what I've called you to do. But God, don't you know, like, have you heard, have you seen my bank account, God? Like, I don't know if you know, I don't have a lot of money. But the reality is, when God calls us to do something, should our response be telling God 
what is the better plan and giving God our input. Hey, I hear you loud and clear, God. I got some thoughts. Just pull up a chair. Let's grab some coffee. I don't know. Like, let's talk about it first. No, why? Because God has a plan for your life. He has a bigger picture of your life. He, he actually knows all, he actually knows already on the other side of obedience what's going to happen. How crazy is that? That when I step out in faith and I obey something that God has told me to do, and he says, I want you to give of this, I'm like, yeah, but God, are you sure you're going to take care of me? I didn't ask for your input. I, I, I need your obedience. I need you to be an obedient servant. But then you obey, and how many of you know that you can never go down a wrong path obeying the voice of the Lord? No matter from his word or his voice, if he tells you to do something, you're going to be all right. You're going to be provided for. You're going to be taken care of. God's got you. Same is true for Ananias. That no matter how it ended up, if God called him to it, everything is going to be okay. And that's exactly what we see. Even with Ananias' rebuttal, we still see him go. And God didn't have to respond, but he did. I always think of like instances like this when God tells you to do something and then you're reluctant towards it. I always think of many instances with my kids. We've told them before, like obedience is a non-negotiable in our house. Like when we tell you something, we like immediate obedience is the goal. Why? Because we're trying to teach them how to be obedient towards God one day. Like we want them to know, like whenever, whenever we tell you, hey, I need you to go get ready for bed, put your jammies on. Kids love doing that. Five more minutes. Five more minutes. Hey, hey, Jamie, just, just do it. I don't need your input. Why do those little, you're like, that seems silly. Why does that even matter? Because the, there are going to be moments, there have been moments, where my kids have been running straight for the road, and I'm like, stop, stop. And they don't stop, and they don't keep going. No, it's fine. I'm just grabbing something. No, no, immediate obedience. Why? Because I know what's best for you. I'm trying to protect you from something. I have a bigger plan. I have a bigger perspective of your life than you do. That's God in your life. He doesn't need your input. What if he's trying to protect you from something that you would have done, that you would have thought would have been better, but he's trying to protect you from something? Not only provide. God says, for, go, for this man is my chosen instrument. Why would God use somebody as horrible as Saul to be his chosen instrument? Somebody as hostile as Saul. Well, I guess that could kind of be said of, of all of us. Why would God use somebody as wretched as me, as horrible as me? I stand up here every week. I preach. I teach. I try to live a life that exemplifies an overseer, an elder, as outlined in Scripture. But if I'm being super honest with you, I'm a wretch. I'm a sinner. No better than you. I make mistakes daily. I'm angry. Lash out. I disobey God. I'm fearful sometimes. I'm a wretch. You're a wretch. 
We're all a wretch. That's okay. Because God loves us that much. He loves us so much that he meets us in our wretch. He meets us in our sin, right in the middle of it. And he forgives us. He says that I love you. And he says, you're my chosen instrument. I, I actually chose you. You didn't fall into my plan for your life. I chose you. And I want to use you. Many of you probably feel like I can't be used by God. I've done too much. And it's a lie. You may be thinking, I don't have the gifts of Saul. I don't have five books of the Bible memorized. It's okay. You have a Bible. You have the Holy Spirit. He wants to use you. What would happen if we allow God to do something in us so we could do something through us instead of us doing something just for him? That's never God's plan. God's plan was never that Saul would just constantly just keep doing better, being better, achieving more so that he could, God, I do for you, I do for you, I do for you, I do. No. Paul, as a little bit of a latecomer as apostles go, uh, apostles are people in the Bible who have seen the risen, risen Lord and been commissioned by God to be a missionary. He was an apostle of the risen Lord. Says that he strived and he worked harder than anyone else. Well, Paul still, look, he came to faith and he's still arrogant. It's actually not the case. If you keep reading on in the passage in Corinthians, he says, I worked harder than all of the other apostles, but it was not me. It was the grace that God is working in and through me. God was doing something in Paul's life so that he could do something through Paul's life, not so that Paul could do something for him. Because he was chosen. Ananias obeys in spite of fear, and he actually goes and he enters the house. And uh, you see the interactions between Ananias and Saul, and really, really amazing. I love Ananias. Just this not extravagant person. Don't know a lot about him. But, man, can you imagine being the one to, to touch Saul, to pray over Saul, and scales fall off, and Saul, for the first time, you're the first person Saul sees. Then it says that he got up and he was baptized. Saul put his faith and his trust in Jesus, redeemed by the blood of the Lamb, immediately goes and is baptized. I want to ask you today, have you been baptized Baptism is not a stamp of approval of your salvation. It doesn't seal your salvation. It doesn't rewash anything off. There's nothing special about the water. But baptism is a profound symbol and an act of obedience in Scripture that you have professed Jesus as Lord of your life. It's also known as one of the sacraments of the faith, meaning it is a, it is a declaration that you are buried with Christ, as Christ was buried, and that you're raised to walk in new life. Have you been baptized? Have you made that public declaration of faith on this side of your salvation? If the answer is no, let's get you baptized. Let's fill up the water. What's the hesitation? Saul got saved. He got baptized. We see this demonstrated with the Ethiopian eunuch that we just read about in scriptures. We see that Jesus, when he was beginning his ministry, was baptized. What's preventing you from being baptized? 
You never know how your one act of obedience in getting baptized could be the very thing that... I've, I've had this happen many times at Pinewood before where I was, somebody was getting baptized and I look over and I see somebody just crying. Crying. I go and talk to him and it's just like, wow, that, that really shook me. And I want to talk to you about what it means to be a follower of Jesus. It's like, it is, it's not just this little celebratory thing that we do. No, it is. We are commissioned by God to do it. It's one of the local non-negotiable, local church non-negotiables. At Pinewood, we baptize, and we go big, and we celebrate it. Have you been baptized? Let us know if you haven't on the Connect card. Ananias, I'm a big fan of names and name meanings. We named our daughter Nariah. That's right. We're that kind of a family. We name, we give our kids weird names. That's okay. Fits in Boulder really well. I've met a, I've met a mountain. I've met a bear. I've met a river. I, th- I know a storm. So, I mean, we like just fall right in those categories. You know, we have, we have a Nariah. Her name means burning light of God. How cool is that? And she is one. She loves Jesus, and she burns bright for Jesus. She was the one that's her and Sally inviting friends to church, and even today, and then inviting them back at the end of the church, and even today, Sally's just sitting there working, which Sally's name means patience. I'm a big fan of name meanings. And uh, she's just like, yeah, and she's just talking about God and how, like, uh, this friend of hers is going to come to know God and all this stuff. And I'm like, wow, what a powerful little missionaries they are. But I think names have significant impact there. My name is Parker. I'm a keeper of the park. You know, I'm a world changer. I make sure all the parks are in order. I keep, I keep the parks. <laughs> I love the outdoors, maybe. Oh. Anyways, names have significant meaning. And Ananias' name was a common name. And uh, it took on the Greek form of the Hebrew name, Hananiah. And it means the Lord is gracious, or Yahweh was gracious. The Lord is gracious. And as I think of Ananias' name and the significance of his name, the Lord is gracious, I think about, wasn't the Lord gracious in saving and redeeming Saul? And wasn't the Lord gracious in using Ananias? I can imagine just saying, oh, Lord, you're so gracious. Thank you for using me. Just this lowly, obedient servant. You're so gracious. Behind many well-known servants of God, like Paul, are lesser-known believers who have influenced them. We must never underestimate the value of one person brought to Christ. Around this same time, Peter was ministering to thousands in Jerusalem. Philip had a great harvest among the Samaritan people, but Ananias was sent to only one man. And what a man, Saul of Tarsus. Saul of Tarsus became the apostle, and his life and ministry have influenced people and nations ever since. Even secular historians confess that Paul is one of the most significant figures in world history. These aren't cute stories. This isn't a novel that you read about that somebody just happened to jot down. These are real people, real occurrences in history. And what what a powerful story for Ananias, this lesser-known person, to play such a significant role simply because 
He was obedient. Not because he had all the gifts. Not because he was in the right place at the right time. But because he was obedient to the voice of God. I want to ask you, are you obedient today? And then finally, an empowering sponsor. I love Barnabas. Barnabas is one of my favorite people in all of the Bible. Barnabas' name means son of encouragement. Isn't that a cool name? I mean, we should have named one of our sons Barnabas. Call him Barb, you know? (laughs) Call him Barn. Um, Let's read this passage together. (laughs) We're done with kids. We're not having any more kids, so there'll be no barn. Saul was with the disciples in Damascus for some time. Immediately, he began proclaiming Jesus in the synagogue. He is the Son of God. This is extremely significant because this is Saul is now preaching and teaching that Jesus is the Son of God. This is the first instance that we see when we reference the Son of God. All who heard him were astounded and said, Isn't this man in Jerusalem who is causing havoc for those called on his name and came here for the purpose of taking prisoners to the chief priest? And Saul grew stronger and kept continuing founding the Jews who lived in Damascus by proving that Jesus is the Messiah. He's the Son of God. He's the Messiah. There's some radical transformation that happened in Saul's life. After many days had passed, the Jews conspired to kill him, but Saul learned of their plot, so they were watching the gates day and night, intending to kill him. But his disciples took him by night and lowered him in a large basket through an opening in the wall. When he arrived in Jerusalem, he tried to join the disciples, but they were all afraid of him. Rightly so, right? Probably be afraid of him too. Since they had not believed he was a disciple. But verse 27, everything begins to change. Barnabas, however, took him and brought him, brought him to the apostles and explained to them how Saul had seen the Lord on the road and that the Lord had talked to him. And how in Damascus he had spoken boldly in the name of Jesus. Saul was coming and going with him in Jerusalem, speaking boldly in the name of the Lord. He conversed and debated with the Hellenistic Jews. The Hellenistic Jews, mind you, are the same Jews that Stephen, just a few chapters last week we talked about, was debating with and gave the charge against. Isn't it ironic that here we are yet again with the Hellenistic Jews where Saul was previously prosecuting in. Here we see him being prosecuted. The tables have shifted here. The tables have turned. But they tried to kill him, just like Saul did with Stephen. But when the brothers found out, they took him down to Caesarea and sent him off to Tarsus. So the church throughout all Judea, Galilee, and Samaria had peace and was strengthened. Living in the fear of the Lord and encouraged by the Spirit, it increased in Barnabas, son of encouragement, believed in Saul before everybody else did. He came back to Jerusalem. None of the apostles took him serious. Barnabas said, brought him, said, come with me, Saul. Has there ever been a time in your life where somebody believed in you when nobody else did? Maybe everybody else had given up somebody that believed in you? Maybe, maybe I'll ask it this way. Has there ever been a time in your life where somebody opened a door for you? That maybe 
you couldn't have opened for yourself, but somebody opened it for you. And that is being an empowering sponsor. And saying, I got this person. And, 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 and I'm going to speak on their behalf. I'm going to open doors that they can't open. I'm going to go first. I'm going to be bold in my presentation of them. I'm going to leverage my reputation for their benefit. Has anybody ever done that for you? If somebody has done that for you, I want to ask, have you ever done that for somebody else? This may be a really profound moment for you. Maybe thinking, honestly, no. I don't think I've ever truly empowered someone or stood in the gap for someone or opened the door for somebody. Maybe, maybe my focus, maybe my attention has been a little too much on myself. Early on in ministry, my wife and I attended this Sunday school class. It's kind of like a cool, uh, like a crew, but it's like on a Sunday before a service. And our teacher there, his name was Todd Cox, dear friend, mentor, pastor, and he got to know us really well. And my wife and I, we started feeling called towards mission work. And we said, we came to him and we said, hey, we're going to start getting involved in overseas missions work. And, and he said, oh, I know who you need to talk to. So in this big church, we went to this huge church. He, he brought us in. He took us to the executive pastor. I mean, I always thought, like, man, I could never go to the executive pastor, you know? Like, I never want to bother him. Like, he's the executive pastor. Like, for me, I was always kind of timid. He, he doesn't know who I am. Like, but Todd, man of great reputation, uh, been there for years, had a great name, knew the executive pastor really well. He brought me and Jess to the executive pastor, and he said, hey, I want you to meet two really good friends of mine. This is Parker and Jess. They're leaders in the church. They've been faithfully attending. They're, they're making a difference. They have this call on their life. And he began to open doors for us that otherwise we wouldn't be able to open. He stood in the gap for us. He believed in us before anyone else believed in us. And it was because of that personal connection and that interaction, a door was opened for us. And it opened it up for us to be able to go to overseas missions through the church. We were sent out from the church. We were, they, we even like got called out in the middle of a service and like the whole church prayed over us like multiple times. We were like, what is happening? That ultimately led to me coming on staff and, and getting ordained through this church, becoming one of the pastors, which ultimately led to us being able to be sent out here to start this church. So Todd opened a door. He leveraged his reputation he leveraged his relationship, and he took a chance on a young couple that didn't know him anything. And as a result, we have been able to see God do some incredible things around the world, some incredible things here in Boulder. Young leaders or up-and-coming leaders, maybe you're old, and you're like, hey, I'm going to start being a leader now. They never forget the first person that believed in them. You'll never forget the first person that empowered you and said, no, you have this calling on your life. You have this gift on your life. And I believe it so much so, I'm going to leverage my own reputation for your benefit. Empowerment says, I believe in you. see that he endorsed Saul's leadership 
to others. Uh, I believe that it, you don't only, when you're empowering somebody, you don't only say, hey, I believe in you, and then you connect them with somebody. But I believe that you endorse them publicly. And you say, I'm going to go all in on this person. So let's just practically how this plays out. And then you walk the journey with them. But first, let's see how this practically plays out today. You've been coming to church here for two months, three months. You don't know a lot of people, but you know some people. You haven't been able to serve yet on a lot of teams, but you've been able to serve on one team. And you've kind of you've gotten to know one area a little well. Well, guess what? When a guest walks through those doors, you can be a Barnabas. You can be the son of encouragement. You can say like, hey, I've only been here a couple months, which probably actually helps you connect with that person really well because you're new. And I don't really know a lot of people here, but I know this person. You gotta meet, you gotta meet Sam. You gotta meet, you gotta meet Andy. You gotta meet Jay. You gotta meet Sarah. You gotta meet, you gotta meet these people. I, I don't know a lot of people, but I know these few people. And then you begin opening doors and you're like, hey, you're telling these people, I, I don't really know this person. I only met them five minutes ago, but they just moved here. They seem like a really nice person. You're like, you're taking a chance on somebody. You're, you're leveraging your, your reputation for them. You're trying to empower people to get plugged into the family, to get plugged into serving, to be an empowering leader. I, I feel like for many years, I mean, I feel like for centuries, we've lost the art of being a Barnabas. And we come every Sunday and we're like, this is my day. I've been filled up today. I go to church and I get filled up. And I think we've missed the mark on what God called us to be as the local church. God called us to be Barnabas. I love how a mentor of mine, uh, Shadonke Johnson, he said if there, if in, the, in the life of a follower of Jesus, if there's an empowering problem, there's, a, there's a, a DNA problem in your Christian life. There's a glitch. There's a, there's a flaw. Because as followers of Jesus, we are called to live the life of Jesus. No greater empowerer lived than Jesus, who discipled for three years 12 people that changed the face of the world. There's no better empowerer than Jesus. We're supposed to follow his example. Who are you empowering? Who are you standing in the gap for? We're an empowering church. You don't only stand in the gap for them, speak on their behalf, endorse them publicly, but you don't leave them there. All right, I, I'm such a good empowerer. I just connected them with one person. And then you never speak to them again. <laughs> that is not biblical empowerment. As we see it with Barnabas, Barnabas endorsed him. He did all of these things, but he didn't leave him there. We actually see that Barnabas connected with him even again later on in Antioch. They became great warriors together, fighting the fight of faith, planting churches together. Barnabas was committed to him. Let's not be people that endorse people and then leave them alone to their own. Let's actually commit to follow through with what we said we believed in in the first place. If you said you believed that they were going to make a difference, then stay true to the journey of them becoming one who is making a difference. So those are the, those are the three stories that we talked about tonight. As we have a converted sinner, we have an obedient servant and an empowering sponsor. Hey, thanks for listening. If you'd like to learn more, or if you'd like to join us on a Sunday, head on over to pinewoodboulder.com. If you enjoyed this podcast, please share it. And if you'd like to be notified every time we post new content, then subscribe. And remember, 
just keep coming back. <laughs>